You're listening to Reality San Francisco's weekly podcast. For more audio content or information, please visit us at realitysf.com. Good morning, everyone. Okay, so uh, I'm just going to come right out and say it. Uh, today, there will be uh, uh, an elephant in the room. Um, there will be after I read this text, and I really want you guys to, I'm, I'm going to read something in a second, and as I do, there's going to be like this lingering, um, there might even be this lingering tension in the room after I read today's text. Uh, there has been more ink spilt over 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9, uh, than any other probably biblical topic over the last 10 years. It's these two Greek words that everyone argues about, uh, malakoi and arsenikoitai. Malakoi and arsenikoitai are both found in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. The way the NIV translates malakoi and arsenikoitai are in two, in one sentence, and, they re, and it translates it like this, men who have sex with men. Now, the reason why I bring up the elephant in the room right away is simply because once I read it, you might expect the whole sermon to be about that topic. And inevitably, I also believe, because I know a lot of people at this church, not everyone, but a lot, there might be fear that strikes at the heart of many worshipers here today. And because of that, I want to tell you that I will not that the sermon will not be on these two words and why they won't be on these two words. I believe as a pastor and preacher, I will be doing a disservice to both the text and this church if I read the bulk of 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and try to squeeze the text through these two words. A lot of people have done that to the damage of the church. That's not what this passage is about. However, I have taught at length on sexuality in this church and the good news of the biblical sexual ethic. And we'll be dealing with that more next week as we move on, as Paul does talk about sexuality. But I will say this before we read our text and pray. Being straight does not get you into heaven, and it does not get you into the church. Being redeemed by Jesus, who is not a respecter of persons or attractions, does get you in. That is the gospel. I think I made it clear at this church that orientation or attraction does not save you, but I think I've made it equally clear that the Bible does have a sexual ethic, a way for us to live as humanity into our sexuality. And though we are all sexually broken, every single person in here is sexually broken. If you're thinking, well, I'm not sexually broken, if you classify yourself as having the right quote, right sexual orientation, chances are you're a polygamist at heart, which is a sin, which means you're guilty, which means you're broken, like the rest of us. We are all sexually broken. However, the most liberating words of today's text come to us all shining through to bring light and warmth on the most damaged parts of our human sexuality, and they are these words. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. 
And that is where I hope to end this morning. So allow me to read 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1 through 11, and pray and then get into our text this morning. So 1 Corinthians chapter 6, start at verse 1. If any of you has a dispute with another, do you dare take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the Lord's people? Or do you not know that the Lord's people will judge the world? And if you are to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Do you not know that we will judge angels? That should have an exclamation point there, but whatever. <laughs> How much more the things of this life? There's the exclamation point. Therefore, if you have disputes about such matters, do you ask for a ruling from those whose way of life is scorned in the church? I say this to shame you. It is possible it, it is possible that there um, is it, sorry, is it possible that there is nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers, but instead one brother takes another brother to court, and that and this in front of unbelievers. The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means you have been, you have been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong. And you do this to your brothers and your sisters. Do you not know that the wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. That's our text. Let's pray. God, as I was uh, praying this morning for the church, um, I really sensed you, and I really believe it's, it's, even, it's even for right, right now that, that God, you, you remember that we're just dust. You remember that you, we're, we're, we're just fragile, fragile people. And God, I pray that you would take people who are fragile and people who are um, broken and, and struggling and, and feel like you have just rejected them or feel like the church has rejected them and that today, God, we would, we would understand the great, profound, beautiful power, capacity, and responsibility that the church has to one another. That this place, God, this church would care for each other, would lay down our, our lives for one another, that you would change us, as we've been talking about over the last several weeks, from the inside out, to know that we have a real flesh and blood responsibility as followers of Jesus. I pray that the future shalom of the world would crash into San Francisco in 2013 through the church. God, make us agents of peace here in this building, here among one another, and in this city for your glory. And I pray right now that you would use me and you would anoint me, God, as I um, teach this morning, I need, I need your, your um, wisdom and power. We love you. We look to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. This is what I believe our text teaches us this morning. Two things. And this is where, there was three things, but I was way too far deep to have three points today, so I just cut one out. But I kind of rolled one in the other, but whatever. Um, here's two points. Our competency as a church and our transformation as a community. 
This is what I think our text teaches us this morning. Our competency as a church, what we are capable of as a church, but also our transformation as a community, how we've been changed by God. And that's how it ends. First, our competency as a church. The church has enormous power. And I mean that in the best way possible. The church is capable. You and I are capable of so much good. And by church, I mean us. I don't mean the institution of the church. I don't mean the 501c3 nonprofit religious organization. I don't mean a building. We don't have a building. So obviously can't mean a building unless someone buys one for us. Just saying. (laughs) I don't mean the building. I mean the people of God. We We, the church, have enormous power as a church to transform the world for the better, to shape it. We can act like a preservative where it's decaying most. We can act like light where its darkest spots remain. Jesus called his people salt and light. It's who we are. He says, you are the salt of the world. You are the light of the uh, the earth. This is who you are. This is who I am. This is who you are. This is who we are as the church. We have potential power to do so much good. And if that's who we are, we are also people who possess ability and responsibility to care and to take care of one another in the church. We should be able to handle things in the church. We should be able to meet each other's needs, whether those needs are financial or emotional or physical or spiritual or relational and, yes, even judicial. We should be able to handle those things in the church. Jesus comes and he creates almost a surrogate family and he calls it the church. One time in um, Mark chapter 3, Jesus was teaching. Actually, this is captured in most of the gospel accounts. Jesus is teaching and he's preaching. And as he's teaching and preaching, the room gets so filled up with people that his own family can't even get in. And his mom and brothers are outside going, tell Jesus to come out. And so the message relays all the way inside the building. And they're like, um, Jesus, your mommy wants you. And, um, and Jesus says this. He says, who is, who, are, who is my mother and who are my brothers? He and she who does the will of God. The people who do the will of God are my brothers, my sisters, my fathers, my, sister, my brothers. That's who, who it is. It's like a surrogate family. All of a sudden he comes in and he creates a surrogate family of followers of God. This is what the church is. And because it is that, everything we need could be found in the church. Everything we need could be found right here in the church. Your financial needs, if you have them, can be met here in the church. They should be. They can be. Your emotional needs could be met in the church. Your physical needs, obviously you're spiritual, but what we do is we kind of push everything to spiritual. Spirituality, yeah, I go to the church for that. Anything else, I don't. Even judicially, we can go to the church for these matters. But I don't think we really believe that. I don't think we really believe this. I don't really think that everything we need, we can find in the church. I don't really think we understand that. I know the church is guilty of many things. It's guilty of neglect and pride and abuse and bigotry and racism and stinginess and a host of other things. But we cannot sell short the power the church has and what Christ created the church to be or recreated her to be. We have enormous power. We, the church, have profound capability of so much good. We are going to judge angels. This is so cosmic. Oh my gosh, like do you, do you read this and go, what? 
does that mean? I have no idea what that means at all. I don't know, but it's going to be so cool. You and I have the ability, the capability to judge angels. You guys remember, um, I don't know if you remember, you guys probably weren't around, but black and white films, like old ones, no, no one was around then. Um, not that I was around then, I'm just saying. But um, I've watched many, you know, back in the, the early, you know, the 50s, 60s, uh, and, and before silent films, people would always slap one another. Like, when someone was being dumb, they would just go, pah, and then slap them in the, and not like in a, an abusive way, but like in a come to your senses way, like look alive way, like what are you thinking? And people just slap each other all the time, not like in their Three Stooges sort of way, but in, a, in almost like a, um, a dignified way, like what are you thinking? No, like that, like I want to return to those days so bad, you don't know how many people I want to slap, <laughs> but not in an abusive way, but like in a, like are you really thinking that right now? Are you really saying that? Is that, really, is that really coming out of your mouth? Just, and just slap, just, I don't know. I, I, I get this. If I look at you funny, it might be because I want to slap you. <laughs> and, 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 and not in a mean way, but and this is what Paul is doing right here. When he says, when he drops the, you're going to judge angels that bomb, that's like a slap. That's like a, remember who you are, and that's the point. Paul is saying, don't you know who you are? You're going to judge angels. Are you kidding me? You cannot answer and you cannot take care of a simple dispute in the church. You're going to judge angels. You should be able to handle a dispute in your church. You should be able to deal with problems in your church. You're going to judge the world. And this is Paul's whole point, and this is all what he's getting at. Look at verses 1 through 3 again. If any of you has any dispute... Um, First, notice that it's dispute. It's a dispute going on. What Paul is doing here is he's saying there's, there is, this was not a capital crime. This wasn't like murder. This was a dispute. And he was talking about civil disputes that happened in the church. If you have a dispute with one another, do you dare take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the Lord's people? They were going outside the secular law to judge civil disputes. Then he says this, to slap them, to get them out, to make them come to their senses. Do you not know that the Lord's people will judge the world? Do you not know who you are? And if you were to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? If you're going to judge the world and angels, can't you handle a dispute? Now, civil disputes consisted of money and property and work and work-related contracts. Basically, another church member in the church wronged someone in the church, and it involved personal property. It was a dispute. Now, why is Paul so angry about somebody robbing someone and them going outside to the courts? Why is Paul so angry? He actually said something earlier in 1 Corinthians. He says, hey, listen, I'm not trying to shame you guys. But then later on he goes, okay, I'm going to shame you now. And he says this in verse 5, I say this to shame you. I want you to feel ashamed. This was a shame culture. I want you, I want you to shrink down and realize, what was I thinking? I feel so ashamed. He says this to shame them. Now, why is he so angry? There are a couple layers here of his anger that I want to just peel back real fast with you so you understand why Paul is so angry. The first layer that I want to peel back is that the responsibility of the, the new community as a church. The church is to be this new community. This community that has all things in common. We should care for one another. We get a beautiful picture of this in the book of Acts. 
Acts chapter 4 says this, that all the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. What I love about this is that the resurrection of the Lord Jesus is tied to now this new family that God makes. This family that God makes is so radical that it actually does something to prove the resurrection. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them that there were no needy persons among them. Check this out. One of the things that grieved Paul and made him angry about the church he started in Corinth was that they were not living like this. They weren't living to where they shared their possessions, where they gave freely, where they were generous, where they, they met each other's needs in love. We place a high value on personal property. I know I do. I place a very high value, and this is me, this is confession moment, Pastor Dave's confession moment. I place a high value on personal property, higher than I should. You might place a high value on your personal property. I take care of everything I own almost in an OCD, wrong, need to repent manner. Everything I own. Last week, um, <laughs> excuse me, he's going to kill me that I said this. Last week, Pastor Tim borrowed my shoes um, to teach because he didn't have anything to match what he was wearing. So um, <laughs> don't tell him I said this. Um, so can I borrow some, some shoes? And I was like, um... I don't know if I really have the ones. She, he's like, Dave, come on, don't lie. I've seen, like, and so, and he's wearing them. And I just, I just watch his feet all day long. Where are you stepping? What are you doing? Okay, don't do, walk this way. And like, I take my, now like, I have this really weird sense of, and, and it's sin, it's wrong, it's in me. We all have this like, and what, 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 when we place high value on our, on our personal property, what it does is it ties us to the earth. It ties us to this age. It wraps our hearts around stuff. Why did Jesus talk more about money than he did about hell or sin? Because our hearts are wrapped around our wallets. They're wrapped around them, and Jesus is trying to untangle all the stuff that we hold onto in this earth. Like, oh, I love my shoes, I love money, I love my house, I love my stuff, and we grab onto it, and we're anchored to this age, and we can't be released from it. And so this is why Christ continually calls his followers to be open-handed, to be generous, to give things away, to give our lives away. Because that means we're living in this age, but we don't live, we're not of this age. We're like future people. We live in the future, and we're just here and now. This is why Paul is so angry. They're close-handed with their stuff. C.S. Lewis said, don't let your happiness depend on something that you may lose. When you tie your life to this earth, when you tie your life to possessions and people and stuff and your whatever you have, your apartment, your, your, your stuff, your job, your things, you could lose that and there goes your happiness as well. We think happiness comes from what we own, what we possess, our collections, our stuff. And so we become a hoarding people. Last week when I was with uh, Pastor Britt and Pastor Tim from, uh, Pastor Tim taught here and you guys were here when when Britt was here as well. He taught at the Minju Tree. I picked them both up from the airport and I stopped by a store and got like bunches of a lot of water bottles, like big water bottles because when we're on trips, like you always, you're always thirsty and run out of water. So I bought all these water bottles and me and Britt love 
you know, drinking water. I mean, it sounds weird, but whatever. And, um, and I open up the trunk. He's like, oh, water. And I'm like, yeah, water. I got water. Um, we're easily pleased people. And, um, and so I don't, this is, this is going nowhere. But um, so we grab, all, we, we, we take them in our, our, our room and then by, okay, so Friday, by Saturday afternoon, all the water's gone. Gone. And I was like, Britt, where's the water? He's like, I, I drank it all, man. I'm like, you drank it all? I bought like eight bottles of water, like big ones, like liters. It's all gone. It's like, it's all gone. I was, just, I, was, I was angry. I was like, man. And then as the weekend progressed, he would always have a fresh bottle of water. <laughs> and by Sunday afternoon, I'm like, dude, where'd you get that water bottle? He's like, all right, I hoarded the water. <laughs> I shoved all of them in my bag, and I've been... I w- then I got, I got, I was, I was, I was angry. I was, I was like, I was angry because I didn't think of it first. I was angry because like, I should have hoarded water. Like I've been so thirsty from like Saturday afternoon to right now because you hoarded all the water. We, this is, we do this all that with stuff. And that's a silly illustration, but we do this with stuff. We tie things, we hoard things, we keep them. And as followers of God, we are to be an eschatological people. You've heard me say this before. Eschatology has to do with end times. We're to be future people. We are to live in this age, but we are to live for the age to come. We are not to tie ourselves down with stuff. The age to come is where peace and shalom and justice and righteousness and joy and the full knowledge of the Lord will be present. And that future has crashed into the present age. And how it's crashed into the present age is called being a Christian. And Paul taught this with ruthless regularity. You are future people. He is angry because they are so tied to their stuff that someone stole something from someone else. Like, I'm going to sue you. And I'm not going to bring it up in the church. I'm going to go outside. I'm going to take you to the Roman courts, the Roman civil courts. And the church was like, yeah, that sounds fair. You should do that. Paul is angry at this. Another, another layer. Let me peel back another layer. The courts, secular courts. Under Roman law, the criminal courts were actually pretty fair and objective and for their time in history. However, Roman civil courts were actually pretty corrupt. Civil courts were slanted in favor of the rich and powerful. Some of the laws that surrounded Corinth said that if anyone of lower social class could not sue someone of higher social class. But higher social class people can sue lower social class people. And the courts were filled with people from the higher class. Judges and, and lawyers were all filled with the upper class. So it wasn't a jury of your peers unless your peers were rich and powerful. So the person who was suing in the church was suing someone of low social status. Someone of high social status in the church was suing someone of low social status in the church. And they were, the church was allowing it. And so Paul says, shame on you. Another layer is found in verse 7. The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means you have been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Okay, this is next level, church. This is, uh, hold on tight. This one hurts. Paul is saying, if you get to the point where you want to sue someone in the church for civil matters, why? Why sue them? And you would probably respond, because I have rights. And Paul would probably respond, and what did Jesus do with his rights? Yes, that was the Jesus bomb. 
just dropped. Do you see how that, he's like, but I have rights. Why I'm suing this person? Because I have rights. And they took my, and Paul would say, but Jesus had rights. You're like, yeah. And what did he do with his rights? Oh, yeah. He laid them down for the other. Here's a question. What option to sue or not to sue would be fundamentally consistent with their true identity in Christ? It would be not to sue. But there even, there's something in us, even right now, you're like, no, 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 no. If I, suing is, is, a, is, is good because you get like, they've, they've defrauded me and I'm going to go after them. Paul says, if you do that in the church, you've already, you already look completely defeated. Why not just be, just be wronged for the sake of Christ? Why not just say, you took my property, I forgive you. You took my stuff, I forgive you, and I love you, and we're part of the church. Why not just do that? Why not just go the Jesus route? Because that's who you are in Christ. This is what Paul is trying to get at. See, to be entitled and right and not go after it is one of the hardest things our human pride can handle. Say around 4 o'clock today, you're a line at by right. The line is wrapped around four buildings. And someone gets in line, eight people in front of you. What happens? You're like, listen, bro, I've been in line for four days. <laughs> line starts back there. Right? That's just what you do. You're like, well, listen, I, it's, not, it's not fair. You can just sneak in last minute. It, hardest thing to do would be to go, God bless you. That's awesome. You can say that sarcastically, but you can't say that genuinely. <laughs> but this is what Paul's getting at. Why not just go, you know, I'm going to be wronged. For the sake of Christ, I'm, gonna let, I'm just going to let this go. This falls into who they are in Jesus. This falls into their identity. Last layer. We are future people. We are an eschatological people. We are people who live in a future reality today. That is what the church is. The church is made up of future people. That would actually be a really cool name for a church. Future people. That's what, don't take that one. I'm going to save that one for later. That is what the church is. There are people who live in this future where, where, where Christ rights every wrong and he brings in shalom and he brings in peace and righteousness and justice and we live into today. That's why we, we, we advocate for justice. We advocate for peace. Why we, why we um, take in orphans and widows and why we do these things because that's what the future is going to be like and we want to live in that future right now. This is what the church in, at its best should be doing. For Christians, the future has invaded the present. This is what Paul means when he says we will judge the world and we will judge angels. Verses 2 and 3. Or do you not know that the Lord's people will judge the world? Do you not know that we will judge angels? These are both allusions to something in the book of Daniel chapter 7. Now, if you've ever read Daniel, the book of Daniel is kind of like the book of Genesis, Exodus, Exodus, and Leviticus. You get through Genesis and Exodus, you get to Leviticus, you're going, okay, I think I'm going to quit now. In the book of Daniel, you read Daniel chapter 1 to 6, and you're going, man, this is a great book. And you get to chapter 7, you're like, what just happened? If you've ever, obviously not that many people have read Daniel. Okay, so go home and read Daniel, 
and you'll get to chapter 7, and, you, and all of a sudden the thing just gets weird and weirder and weirder until chapter 12. It actually is one of my favorite books in the Bible. But in chapter 7, you get this. And I can't read the context. I'm just going to read you the verse where Paul is taking this from. Daniel chapter 7, verse 26, it says, But the court will sit, this final God-judging judicial court, the court will sit, and his power, speaking of this demonic, antichrist, end-of-the-world figure, his power will be taken away completely, destroyed forever. Then the sovereignty, power, and greatness greatness of all the kingdoms under heaven will be handed over to the holy people of the Most High. Who's that? Us. That should trip you out. The people of God, Israel and the church, the people of God, to be handed over to the holy people of God Most High. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom and all rulers will worship and obey him. What Paul is doing, he's taking this right from Daniel chapter 7. He's saying the future people of God will rule the universe, the cosmos with Christ. If you can rule the world, don't you think you can handle civil matters? If that's who you are, this is why Paul gets so cosmic here. He says, this is where we're heading You'll be judging the world. You'll be judging angels. Don't you think you have the capacity to judge a little personal property case in the church? Hello. Can you do that? Remember, this is like a wake-up slap. This is a wake-up. Do you not know who you are? You're the people of God, the future living in the present. Act like it. Richard Hayes says this in his commentary about this section. He says, the Christians, sorry, the Corinthians are to stop seeing themselves as participants in the normal social and economic structures of their city and to imagine themselves instead as members of the eschatological people of God, acting corporately, corporately in a way that will prefigure and proclaim the kingdom of God. That is beautiful. We are to corporately prefigure and proclaim the incoming, in-breaking, soon-to-be kingdom of God that's already here right now. We're to, pre- we're to show the world. And this is why Paul is so angry, because they're doing it in front of unbelievers. You're showing the world that the church is incompetent, but we are so competent. You're showing the world that we are just completely broken, but we've been so redeemed. You show the world that we can't judge matters, but we'll judge angels. The church is capable of so much, but we sell ourselves short. We don't think we are. We say we're broken and we stay there. But Christ takes us to a glorious future that has its way in the here and now. And Paul is saying, don't you know who you are? You're going to be judging angels and nations. You have the profound capability of so much good. You have the Spirit of God. You have peace with God, and we should live at peace with one another. We should be prefiguring and proclaiming the kingdom of God. Now, before we move forward, a couple of notes, because you guys might be confused about a couple things. First of all, Paul is not saying that courts are bad. Paul is not saying that suing is bad or the, the Roman courts are bad. We can't absolutize this. Again, this is a civil matter, not a capital offense. It's not murder or sexual abuse. Paul's saying that you can't take someone to court. You can't get the authorities involved. He's not saying that at all. He's not even saying you shouldn't sue someone. This was about two members in the church submitted to an eldership. 
and they should take their problem to the church who has the capacity to judge rightly in these matters. Now you might, this might get to a place, our church, and I, I, don't, I, I completely see this happening, possibly in the tech space, something happening between two members of our church and they get bought out together and then there is this civil thing and you should be able to take that to the church. Now, it could be something that goes along with people outside the church. What do you do then? Let the courts handle it. This is between two Christians in the church. Hope that makes sense. Paul also used Roman courts when, he, when it suited the gospel. Paul, in the book of Acts, appealed to the Roman courts several times. Again, one of the reasons why Paul was so mad was that the way it made the church look like in the, to the world outside. And we learned last week from Matthew 18 what it looks like to confront in love. So I want to clear up some of that stuff in case you were wondering. Last point, the transformation, our transformation as a community. Verses 9 and 10 might sound like a non sequitur. Like you're reading, you're trucking along, suing, 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 all of a sudden, kingdom of God, not inherit, idolaters, adulterers, you get this, this, this list. But it actually does follow the logic of Paul's argument. Let me read it to you. Verses 9 through 11. Do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither sexually immoral or idolaters or adulterers or men who have sex with men or, or thieves or greedy or drunkards or slanderers or swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that's what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. This list is considered by most commentators and scholars to be the vice, the vice list, a list of vices. It is a list of behaviors. You have to note that. You have to understand. This is a list of behaviors. There are ten behaviors in the Greek. The NIV translates them into nine behaviors. What's interesting and what I find fascinating about this list is that Paul writes them as identity statements. He uses these behaviors as nouns that stand for individuals whose lives are characterized by the sin in question. Does that make sense? All of these vices have something in common that fit with the context, and it is this. The list of vices has this in common, grasping what is not rightfully yours. Grasping at what is not rightfully yours. This plays into the whole suing one another. This plays into all of that grasping and going for things that's not rightfully yours. With the four sexual vices, it's grasping at what's outside of Genesis 2, 24, and 25, if you remember that teaching from several months ago. We'll, re- we'll hit it again next week. All the sexual vices reach beyond what God had purposed sex to be. With idolatry, it's grasping what's outside the first commandment. Have no other gods before me. With thieves or greedies or, or greedy people or swindlers, it's grasping what's outside of their means or taking advantage of someone else's generosity, trying to get something for nothing. With drunkards, it's grasping beyond enjoying alcohol to self-medicating or simply just grasping at one too many beers. But Paul uses these as identity statements. This is what's so heavy about this section of Scripture. He uses them as nouns saying, this now defined, this defined you. And it seems harsh. But what Paul is trying to say is this, that is what you were And this is who you are. That is what you were. Those identity statements about you before Christ were probably true. But they are not true 
anymore. You are now in Christ. You are given a brand new identity, a new way to be human, a new way to live, a new way to live inside of the way that God created us to live as humanity. You are no longer defined by your vices. You are no longer defined by your behaviors, by your inclinations, your temptations, or your failures. That is who you were, but you were washed. That imagery is about being cleansed. This is what the ancient rite of baptism practices, this cleansing in Christ. I've been washed. I've been made new. If you're in Christ, one of the beautiful things that we get to do as a church is baptize you. That shows and tells the world, I've been washed. I've been identified in Christ. But let me explain what this means. Especially as we talk about identity statements. Does this mean you will never again be inclined towards those practices? Could you put up verses um, 9, 10, 11 one more time? Does this mean that you will not be inclined to do those things ever again? Once you're washed, sanctified, justified. Does that mean all of a sudden you're never tempted? You never have any inclinations? Any attraction towards any of those things ever again? Is that what that means? Well, not in reality. Some of you might be so tempted to get drunk every time you drink once you're a Christian. I mean, you have one drink and you, you're, all you want to do is get completely faded, like completely drunk. That was like there's this old way that seeps and you're like, I just want to drink more and more. So much so that you have to stop drinking altogether. And you confess to your community and have them hold you accountable and have them commit to not causing you to stumble. More on that in chapter 8. All the while, you're in Christ, and that's not who you are anymore, though those things still persist. Some of you in here are tempted to swindle. I know that sounds like a 1920s word. (laughs) But this is true. I mean, I almost... I had this idea about a year ago to teach this text and go, you guys know what I want to talk about today, swindling. You're like, no, that's not what I thought you were going to talk about. But this is a huge deal. I know that because there's big things on this list like adultery, we think, oh, swindling, no big deal. But it is a big deal. There are people here at this church that are always trying to get something for nothing. You're always trying to swindle someone. You may think, you may call it, well, I'm being frugal. But your frugality is actually a cloak for you taking advantage of people, and it's wrong. Your life should be marked by generosity, but you're a swindler. But that's not who you are in Christ. So here's the point. Put it away. If that's not who you are in Christ anymore, put it away. You're like, but I have this natural proclivity to be like this frugal sort of swindler trying to get something for nothing all the time. Well, stop in the name of Jesus. Stop doing it. Be generous. Go up to someone and go, no, no, no. I want to pay you more for that. That might be crazy. But that might help you break the practice of going, no, no, I need, I need that for I need that. I need to be, I need to almost get it for nothing. How do I take advantage of you? But we think that's okay. If we think that's okay, no wonder the world looks at the church and goes, don't you, you guys are pretty imbalanced. You guys talk about two things on that list. And everything else you do blatantly. We might have to fight these inclinations off for the rest of our lives 
We may even backslide into them. But what Paul is saying is it's not who you are anymore. You have been washed from them. You have been sanctified from them, and you have been justified. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean that you are sanctified and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God? Justified means that you are declared right. Justified means that you can be declared here and now, today, to be God's true people. You don't have to do anything to earn it. You can't earn it, actually. If you tried to earn it, your hands are dirty and you'll end up messing everything up anyway. This justification before God happens in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. I started this morning by talking about the gospel. I said that being straight does not get you into heaven and that it does not get you into the church. I would also like to add being sober to that list and being generous to that list and being a virgin to that list and being honest to that list. None of those things justify you before God. But we think it does. When we read lists like this in chapter 6, it either makes us really glad to be in, or it's why we hate Christianity. Many today imagine that the moral teaching of Christianity is like that list, and they grumble against God or the church for such an unfair system. It is unfair that I have to adhere to that list. There's no way I can do that list. Or maybe quite opposite. We look at that list and thank God that we are not like that and that we're in such a safe place in the church. Neither of these approaches is what the New Testament describes as the gospel. Let me show you another list and show you how it's wrong. In Luke chapter 18, Jesus tells a parable. He says, to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told a parable. He said, two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, which was a religious leader, and the other a tax collector, which was seen at that time as to be probably the most sinful person in Israel. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people. And then here's the list. Robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this here tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of everything I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven. But he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Church, the way in is through this way of humility. I can read you a million lists, and it would disqualify every single person in this city. We don't get in by lists. We are not made right by a list. What those lists do is to maybe show us who we were, but all of us stand before God and go, you might not even have words this morning, and that's okay. You might just be able to, you might just hold your chest and the only words you can get out is just forgive me. That's it. The Bible proclaims that you go away justified. 
you go away becoming the people of God. Not because anything you've done, right? Because you haven't. No one has. But because of what Christ has done for you. You go away justified in the name of Jesus Christ, who is our righteousness. And if someone has told you that you have to be a certain way to follow Jesus, you would have a tough time reading the Gospels. Jesus was... Jesus spent the most time with the people that society shunned, that moral society shunned. And he called people to himself that would make anyone nervous. And what he does is he changes them. And this is what's so radical about Christ. I think a lot of us look for people that will just love us and accept us for who we are, but they don't ever challenge us. They don't point us to a true way to be human and live into our humanity. And so they may be our friends, they may be great to be around, and they may accept us and we love them, but we know we're not getting better as a human being around them. But there are some people that accept us for who we are and they challenge us and they push us on to be true humans, to be people who live into a, into a true reality of the way that things are supposed to work together and the way that God made them all. And this is what Christ does. He meets us where we're at, and he takes us where we're at, and then he's not satisfied to leave us there. Jesus, Paul says at the end, and you've been sanctified. The very reason Paul has to write this letter is proof that the Corinthians have not arrived yet. The very fact that I keep preaching every week is the fact that I and you have not arrived yet. There's something so glorious about Christ that he receives us and accepts us and he brings us in, then he pushes us toward what it truly means to live into our new identity what it truly means to live as a human, what it means to live a life of peace with God and peace with one another and peace with ourselves. This is what he does. And this is what Christ does. Church, there's, let's look at this list and say in all humility, all humility, that's who we were. But because of Christ, we are that no longer. Let's pray. God, I pray that we would, we would start, I pray for the Christians in here, followers of, of Christ, that we would be, we would be the, the church, we'd be like the church, God. I pray for our community groups this week as they gather and we talk about this. God, show us how to live this out. Lord, I'm... I thank you that you have not given up on your church. I know she's flawed, and, but you haven't given up on her. I know that we live in, in very strange times, God. And the church, she's, she's, fall, she's fallen on hard times, especially in a city like San Francisco, but I, I believe great things for your church. I believe as we love one another and forgive one another and know how to handle disputes and to care for the other more than ourselves and hold loosely to our own personal property, it's going to prove that Christ is risen and Christ is coming again. I want to pray for those that are, that are that were probably a bit nervous when I started this sermon. Nervous that I was going to say there because of a, 
a way that you look in the mirror, you're not acceptable before God. I pray in Jesus' name you would break every lie in the city. None of us are acceptable before God. We're all loved because of the gospel, because of the cross. It shows us that you love the world. I pray that we would receive that love. And we take that love in and it would change us. Pray that many today would trust in Jesus. In your name.